You're listening to The COVID Chronicles, a podcast from the Emory University Center for the Study of Human Health. Each week, a student from the Health and Science podcasting course interviews public health experts about the COVID-19 pandemic and the important intersections with nutrition, mental health, maternal health, and more. I'm Carolyn Christ, a health and medical journalist in Georgia who co-teaches the podcasting course. I hope you'll enjoy this series as much as I did. Now let's get started with this week's episode. Hello everyone, my name is Priya Jitubo, and today we'll be discussing, you guessed it, COVID-19, but particularly this segment will be about comparing how different states in the U.S. have responded to the pandemic, what initiatives and actions they've taken, have things changed in their timeline thus far, can you even compare states, Um, What about urban versus rural healthcare systems? And really, are there any particular successes that one state has compared to another state? To be specific, we'll be focusing on two states that are near and dear to me, New York, because that's where I was born and raised, and Georgia, as I am currently a senior at Emory University in Atlanta. So those are the two states this discussion will be centered around by really looking at their healthcare systems. So we've got three really phenomenal guests here today who are really experts in the field of public health and certain sub-disciplines that are going to be really pertinent to this discussion here today. So um, first, we'll be talking to Chris O'Brien, who is a leader in the healthcare system, Northwell Health in New York State. Northwell Health is the largest provider of healthcare in the state, so they have a really great grasp on what's going on throughout New York because they serve so much of its population. So I'm I'm really personally very excited to have Chris on with us today because he is someone who knows exactly what he's talking about. He stays up to date on what's going on, he does his research, and he's he's in it on the ground in the hospital. Chris works in one of the community hospitals actually near my hometown which was arguably one of the hardest hit hospitals in Queens and Long Island. So without further ado, let's welcome Chris. Okay, so can you tell us a bit about who you are and your background and what you do? Sure. So uh, thank you, Priya, for having me. I'm honored to be on your podcast. Um, My name is Chris O'Brien. I'm the Senior Director of Financial Operations Uh, at LIJ Valley Stream, which is a community hospital within the Northwell Health Health System. Um, I've been at Northwell Health for 12 years uh, in a variety of financial and operational capacities. Uh, And for the last three years, I've occupied this role. And and to kind of put into perspective what my role is, uh, if this was a standalone hospital and not a part of a larger health system, I would be considered the chief op, uh, the chief financial officer of the of the hospital. Right, absolutely. So thank you so much again, Chris, for being here. Um, just to the listeners who are here right now, um, Chris is phenomenal. I have observed him doing some really, really incredible things. So I'm glad to have him here today with me. So can you please walk us through how your state, or um, you can also focus on Northwell itself, um, like what the initial response was to the pandemic and how those actions might have changed or shifted over time to like the present day. Yeah, definitely. Um, I guess let's start with the state, right? Um, so obviously New York State 
was probably the most affected state, uh, you know, uh, within the United States, um, largely because we were one of the first people to get it, right? Um, so we got it when nobody really knew where it came from, what, you know, um, you know, anything about it. We didn't know it had, does, who does this affect? Does this affect young children? Does this affect uh, young adults? Does this affect only older people? Um, a lot of things were kind of unknown at the time. And I think that led to a very mixed response, right? Um, you know, and, and, and hindsight is twenty twenty, right? But, you know, the only thing at the time when, when COVID came out was we had a little bit of data out of China. Um, and then we were really starting to see the impact in Europe, um, you know, in Italy and in Spain. And we had heard you know, some horror stories, but I don't think that anybody really understood exactly how this was really going to impact us uh, in the way that it did. Um, but I think it's, I think it's important to highlight that the, um, you know, the response matched the response at every level, right? And, and I tell people uh, all the time, like, you know, the response at the world level, uh, like there were problems at the world level, at the federal level, at the state level, um, at the health system level, and even within our own hospital administration, I think there are things that there's a March 2020, uh, 2020 understanding of COVID. And now in October, there's a much different October 2020 understanding. And I think it's a little bit easier for me to kind of reflect back on what we did right and what we did wrong in October than in that moment, right? So clearly we were um, underprepared for something of, of this magnitude. You know, we had our first case in the state on March 1st, um, but yet there was kind of mixed messaging coming out of a lot of, of both the state and the federal government as to really how bad this was, right? So I think everybody kind of went about their day-to-day -day lives really up until March 10th uh, when you had the, the first uh, coronavirus containment zone uh, in New Rochelle. Uh, and that really stands out because, and that had such a huge impact on Northwell as well, is that one of our senior leaders uh, uh, within our health system was from New Rochelle and was one of the first people to get this um, and then wound up, and again, I can't give specifics on who the person was, obviously, but that person then went to a meeting with 150 other senior leaders in the health system to discuss uh, the response uh, that we were gonna have as a health system and wound up putting an entire administrative team into a 14 day quarantine, uh, which was challenging. So we had one hospital right from the start of this that lost their entire administration for two weeks. Um, so that was a that was obviously a big moment, and I think that was one of the things that I think led our health system to respond to this slightly faster than some of the other health systems because it had such a personal uh, effect on us. Then once you started to get to the middle of March, um, you know, obviously it was a big time that stands out with me because my wife's a school teacher in New York City. When they and my my daughter's of school age too when they closed down the New York City public schools, I think that's when you started to see over the next couple, that, that day, then they started closing down non-essential businesses. 
um, that's when you then went from a slow response to them trying to play catch up. And I think that from that moment on for a while, um, I think the response was good uh, at the state level. You know, again, were mistakes made? Absolutely. Um, but I think what's important to do uh, during a crisis, and, um, you know, it's, it's funny, I, you know, when I was with you uh, this summer, I, I think I had you read uh, an article from uh, my professor in Dartmouth, Paul Argenti, about communicating through a crisis. Yes. Uh, the most important thing you could do is be forward-facing and um, be as transparent as you can and be visible and communicate, over-communicate during a crisis. Um, and I do think that Governor Cuomo, uh, especially early on uh, from that probably March 20th phase, really up until now, he really even still um, daily communicates. He was very good from a communication standpoint. Um, but yeah, did we have kind of good days and bad days? Absolutely. You know, we went off of... Um, models, right? You had that IHME model from uh, Washington, which seems sophisticated, but obviously over projected what we were going to need in ICU beds and ventilators. So you saw the state request a lot of those things from the federal government, right? And that's when we got the USS Comfort and we um, built the hospital and the Javits Center where there was a mistake there, right? And I think that when we do kind of the look back on this, if there's one thing that uh, can be criticized, and I think it's something that's been uh, brought up in the news, is both of those opened and then eventually closed down, almost virtually never seeing any patients whatsoever. I think, well, I think, again, I don't know the exact number, but they were significantly under capacity. Um, when we tried to get people to transfer to those from our hospital, they were, uh, it was almost impossible to meet the criteria to transfer those patients. So both of those resources, which obviously cost millions of dollars um, in leverage, you know, the military and other arms of our government were never fully utilized. And then when you then couple that with the fact that um, there was a period of time when we sent COVID positive patients to nursing homes, um, that turned out to be a mistake. Um, yeah. Specifically when we look back and say, wow, we had these other facilities that were under capacity Right. You know, it would have been one thing had we been fully at capacity and then we had no other options. Um, but I think that that's one of the things. And again, I'm not saying that as a criticism. Um, what I'm saying is on October the 2nd, it's a lot easier for me to uh, put out there that that was in hindsight a mistake. Um, but in the moment, uh, things moved a lot faster than time was actually moving. Right. Um, you know, every, every minute seemed like an hour uh, and every hour really seemed like a day. That was kind of how it was there. So that's kind of at the state level. Um, in terms of Northwell, and again, I'm not somebody that's going to, uh, like I would say if we, if we were, if we didn't do something right or wrong. But again, I think that going back to what I said about the state, um, our senior leadership in the health system uh, was phenomenal, and they were phenomenal throughout the whole crisis. Again, they widely communicated, uh, that they communicated. Um, our CEO and President Michael Dowling is uh, almost 70 years old, not necessarily somebody with the greatest of health, 
And he, I remember him popping into my office one day, I couldn't believe it, right mm-hmm. in the midst of COVID. And he walked in, he had an N95 mask on, and he said, uh, show me where the emergency room is and the ICU. I want to talk to those, I want to talk to those staff members. Um, and it was such a great uh, display of leadership. Um, and it wasn't just him, it was really all of the top leaders, our chief people officer, who essentially is our chief human resources officer. Um, he was here a few times. Um, and again, when I say in our hospital a few times, I mean, he was at every hospital uh, throughout that crisis, walking the units, what can we do for you? What don't you have? Um, and it was just, um, again, for all the things that we probably didn't do right on an X's and O's standpoint, I think that the majority of the staff uh, believe that uh, that we did a that we did a good job because I think that that kind of you know kind of you know uh, extension of themselves and not just staying in their court in the corporate facility, I think really uh, showed people how much they cared and how much how invested they were. And again. There was another health system in our area, I'm not gonna say which one, mm-hmm. um, but they caught the uh, top level executives in their Florida uh, estate yes. um, in the midst of COVID. And, they, and it was at the same time that uh, two of their nurses were photographed wearing uh, garbage bags uh, for PPE because they didn't have uh, the proper isolation gowns and equipment needed, right? So again, I think that Northwell, there's definitely things that we could look back on and say, wow, we, we could have done this and we could have done that, but they communicated. They were one of the first, first um, we, we were already in the process of canceling elective surgeries even before the state told us to do so, mm-hmm. um, which created much needed capacity. I know at our hospital uh, at Valley Stream, um, our elective unit, which obviously is the thing that helps us make money, we shut that down and it was adjacent to the ICU and CCU. Uh, and we made that an overflow ICU, um, essentially overnight. Um, and, you know, our normal ICU uh, census is 10 on a given day. And it went up to 30, 32 for about an eight to 10 week period of time. So um, that ability to cancel elective surgeries what what I'm I'm most proud of here in my role, which obviously I manage all the finances in and out of the building, mm-hmm. is I usually run run the show pretty tight, right? In the in these facilities, right? Because I'm trying, you know, I'm trying to draw the line between efficiency and but not in a way where I'm robbing from the the quality of care either, right? Because we need to still maintain some healthy margins in order to help our overall mission. But when that happened, there were no rules anymore. It was whatever you need, we're going to get, we're going to spare no expense. Um, we're going to bring whatever we can in. We're going to bring We're going to overnight things. We're going to, we're going to overbuy. We're going to do whatever we're going to go through any possible resource that we can get so that you're not in a position where you don't have what you need in order to protect yourself and to take care of our patients. Um, and again, now looking, and I guess we'll probably get to that down the road, um, looking at the economic fallout of this, um, and seeing how, uh, impactful it's been, I would still do that every day and twice on Sunday because it was the right thing to do. And, um, you know, uh, I, I just can't even tell you what that, what that eight to 10 weeks was like. It was, um, 
something that I'll never be able to unsee. Um, and I just, I, I, I can't, the only thing that, I think the only silver lining that came out of it um, was that health, health systems, right? They don't always get the best press, specifically these big health systems, right? Because they, you know, they, there's a belief that big health systems have driven up the cost of care. Um, and we could debate about that on maybe the next podcast. Yes. Um, <laughs> um, but, you know, we really showed the best um, uh, of what healthcare has to offer in this country. And I thought it was a really great thing to see. And I'm really glad that the nurses, the techs, the respiratory therapists, you know, at least for a short period of time, were able to be elevated and kind of put into this hero status because, um, you know, they, they were amazing. They were absolutely amazing. And I can't tell you how many of them are mothers and fathers. And, you know, at that time, we didn't know anything about it. How many people, there were people that slept in their car. There were people that um, we, we put up in hotels so that they, because they were afraid to go home. Right. Um, the fear that was in their eyes, but they still did. They still did it. And, um, you know, it's an honor to share a platform with them. I think for someone like me, who's kind of like on the other end of it, just kind of like a community member, someone who observes what's going on, um, a huge, huge, huge strength that I was able to observe, even like virtually this summer, was just how much everybody, no matter their role, it was all hands on deck. And that really speaks to that, you know, um, anecdote that you mentioned about the CEO himself even coming down and wanting to be like in the midst of, of it all. Um, everyone was, you know, ready and willing to contribute. And I think that really speaks to Northwell as a whole, but also just each individual hospital and, and what they're about. So I think personally that that was like a huge, huge, huge strength of, of the system and kind of how they responded to the, the pandemic overall. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you also, you touched on really my, my next question, which was the, the strengths and weaknesses, both of the state and the, and the system itself. So thank you for that. Um, even, you know, talking about the Javits Center, that's one I don't think um, a lot of people were aware of, or even just, you know, listeners who aren't from New York were familiar with. So um, that was really great context for that. Um, so moving forward, I wanted to ask about particular initiatives or policies or, or practices, really anything that um, your healthcare system was able to implement that you view as being successful. So whether that's in, you know, reducing the number of cases or helping people um, heal, what were particular things that you all were able to put in place um, to be successful? Yeah. So again, I, I think uh, at the end of my last answer, I was talking about uh, large health systems. And um, I, you know, I remember having this debate with one of my professors at Dartmouth and um you know, he was kind of a, like, you know, why do you need to get so big? You know, are you really getting kind of the, the efficiencies that you're supposed to get? Are you really providing by, by getting so much larger? Are you, um, you know, creating more access, uh, you know, for your patient population? Um, and I think that it was never more on display than during COVID, you know, our hospital uh, over here, which uh, just to give a little bit of perspective, um, is a 284-bed uh, licensed hospital, uh, but we usually only run at about a census of 120, 125 uh, in our building, um, and that's with elective surgeries. Um, and I would say about 30 to 40 of those are orthopedic and general surgery, elective surgery. So when 
we canceled those, right? That should take us down to essentially 80 or so. Our census during COVID was north of 200 um, for a pretty significant period of time, which was you know almost unheard of uh, for our building, specifically in its current state. Uh, and the reason why I say it, and we were, you know, our medical director uh, likes to say we were in the epicenter of the epicenter of the virus, right? Bordering, right. bordering um, Southeast Queens, which was obviously one of the greatest um, areas that was uh, impacted during this specifically early on. Um, and the reason why I say why it's a good thing to be in such a large health system is we set up a transfer um, center w within Northwell, almost brought it, brought it up within days. And if we did not have that transfer center to send our patients and so willingly, obviously for all, all our colleagues out, out in the Eastern region, um, you know, the Huntington hospital, South, Southside hospital, Mather hospital, the way that the, the virus was moving is it was not, it was not that prominent in Suffolk County at the time, but we were getting overrun in Southwest Nassau and Southeast Queens. So by having this transfer center and being able to immediately transfer people out and send them to other hospitals within our system, I think really highlighted um, just exactly why we, we made our strategy the way that we did, right? Which was we, and that's really Northwell's greatest um, asset. You know, I don't know if everybody truly appreciates that, right? But there's so many other health systems in the area that are um, you know, almost internationally known, right? When you think of New York Presbyterian and Mount Sinai and NYU, I mean, these are really well-known institutions. Um, but our greatest asset at Northwell is our size because we have access to every every you you can manage the continuum of any disease any um uh you know throughout right no matter what it is and i think that that was really highlighted during that um another thing that we really were able to um put together was this north northwell uh, hospital at home program and um you know early on we wound up enrolling uh, a little less than 200 patients in it uh with all different types of chronic conditions and these were patients that were um, really hesitant to go to a hospital because they were already in, you know, in poor shape. Um, and we basically brought the hospital to them, right? And that obviously was helpful to them, but it was also another way to alleviate um, some overcrowding within our hospitals. So I think that that was uh, really uh, very important. I mean, um, you know, at a state level, I feel like the state, and I feel like it's still the case now, has really developed a very sophisticated contact tracing program, yeah. which I think has been helpful. I think it's also one of the reasons why um, you've seen our infection rate, even though um, on this date, October the 2nd, it's starting to climb a little bit. Our infection rate has stayed under 1% for a, a significant period of time. Um, and I think a lot of it has to do with that. I think that that's been a very effective program. I think there's also been a very strict 14-day uh, self-quarantine, um, uh, you know, advisory that that has been enforced. Um, I think they've also well worked well with the, the tri-state area too, with the surrounding states, Connecticut, New Jersey. Um, 
But I think those things have really worked. And I think those things have been some of the things that have been able to help us. So early on in the state, I, I, we obviously got overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. um, but if you look at this state now, um, comparatively to some of the other things, some of the other states around the country, um, there's a lot of things that are now being taken from what New York has done and is now being emulated uh, right. throughout. So again, like I mentioned earlier, and I think in the first answer, um, definitely some things where, you know, if we had some do-overs, I think we would do it at every level. Um, but there's also been some real things that have come out of it that I think um, have not just been helpful for New York, but are also going to be helpful for other states as they battle it because they're at different phases of battling this virus. Uh, we just so happen to be one of the first states to deal with it, um, you know, heavily. Right, absolutely. And I think um, that point you mentioned about kind of other states looking at New York and kind of taking um, some of those strengths and some of those things that New York has been able to do really well and kind of applying it to their states really demonstrates how New York has been able to respond really well or as best as they could given the circumstances. Um, and kind of on that note, I wanted to ask, um, looking, I guess, at the United States holistically, how would you define New York as being successful relative to other states? Like, would you um, define it as kind of being up there, being one of the most successful states, or would you point to another state that has been able to kind of deal with it um, better, if that makes sense? Uh, you know what, that's, it's, that's such a tough thing. Um, uh, that's such a tough comparison to make, right? Obviously, you want to be kind of like, your, you know, the cheerleader and say <laughs> that, you know, we did, you know, a great job, but just because like, like every day we're learning more about this virus, right? So um, how we handled it in March versus how a place like, you know, Alabama is handling it in September, it's not necessarily all that comparable, right? right. Um, so that, that, that makes it a little bit, um, you know, tough to compare. Again, like I said, I, I think that it really depends what metrics you're looking at, right? Um, and again, not everything is determined by metrics, right? If you were to look at uh, overall uh, death rate, obviously New York had had one of the highest. It might even have the highest. Um, you know, I'm not a hundred percent sure if that's true, but it's definitely up there. Um, but again, it's just that it was all based on the timing of when it came. I, I think that had this started on the West Coast and moved east. I think we would be telling a different story, but then we would also not be talking about all the innovative things that they did in the moment mm -hmm. that are now being used and in a positive fashion in some other states. So, yeah, so I think that, you know, and I guess this is, this is the real problem with uh, how it's viewed. And, and I think it's good to have somebody like me look at it because I'm a kind of a politically agnostic person, right? I think that a lot of people are looking at successes and failures on this virus through a certain political lens, no matter where you, no matter what um, vantage point that you have, right? So you'll see what you want to see, right? So if you're, uh, you know, conservative, you would think you will point and say that New York did not do a great job, right? If you're uh, more of a progressive, you would say, what is Florida doing right now? You know, they're opening up, you know, their infection rates are climbing and they're opening up all businesses, indoor restaurants at full capacity. That's not the right model at all. The other thing too, is that 
um, and I, and this is like the real tough balance with this, right? Because it, it was a public health crisis, but not just, it's also an economic crisis as well, yeah. right? right? So looking at that in total, I think t only time is going to tell, right? Because the real aggressive states that have been able to keep their um, infection rates down, they've been able to keep their infection rates down, largely driven off of the fact that they've had stronger um, measures around um, keeping businesses closed, mask mandates, um, you know, uh, if things are open, they're open at 25% capacity, 50% capacity. So they may be doing well on one end of this public health crisis, but then maybe when the dust settles economically, it's going to be that much harder to recover um, because we've done that. Um, and then having, especially with the way that, right, who's been disproportionate, right? There's been people that have been disproportionately impacted by that, certainly on the public, public health side, but also economically. And will that lead to an even greater public health crisis um, that, we're, that you'll have further economic disparity um, as a result of this because we've kept people out of their jobs for too long, right? So it's just been a, a, it's been a very tough balance um, between, you know, immediate health but also economic health. And it's, it's such a, a tough thing to keep both of them in mind. And, uh, you know, what's that right balance between keeping people safe and also keeping the population kind of economically healthy as well um, so that we're able to, you know, kind of continue on. Right. I think, first of all, that is a phenomenal answer. Because <laughs> um, I think at the end of the day, when it comes to public health, one of the overarching ideals and, you know, core concepts is really the social determinants of health and all the different aspects, whether that be economics, politics, housing, um, all the different factors that contribute to an individual and their ability to be healthy. And you really see, or we've, we've been able to see during this pandemic, how each of those things comes into play. And speaking, you know, to the question that I asked you earlier, um, it really is, like you said, it's going to be one of those things where we look back in five or six years and we see all of those long-term effects and then we'd be able to look more closely at, you know, what this particular state was able to do and how it affected this particular variable or this particular social determinant um, and kind of observe it from that lens. So I think that is, it's a really great point. There's just so much happening right now and so many factors are interrelated that you can't really look at New York, for example, versus Georgia versus Florida and say, New York was able to do this really, really well, and they responded to it perfectly because of all the different things that are, that are right, right. You know, um, contributing to that. So that's, that's really a, a great um, perspective and kind of lens to, to bring up not only to myself, but also to the listeners as well. So I want to be very respectful of your time and thank you very, very much for being here and you know contributing and having this conversation with me. I'm excited to kind of continue and hear other perspectives as well. Um, so thank you. Any last closing remarks that you have for the people? No, I just wanna thank, uh, thank you for having me on this podcast, uh, Priye. And um, I want to just, uh, I guess, uh, say to the audience here that I've had the pleasure of getting to know you uh, very well over the summer. And I think that for all the people that are listening to this podcast, um, get kind of a, you know, kind of 
you know, get a snapshot of, of, of her voice because she's going to be an absolute star. And, um, you know, you're, you're kind of hearing it at the infantile stages, but, uh, you're such a special person. And, um, I'm so honored that, uh, that you asked me to be a part of this. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Chris. I, I think the listeners are going to be blessed with so much knowledge and so much perspective, um, honestly, especially for people who aren't from uh, New York and kind of don't have that exposure. So I'm excited to hear back from all of the listeners. So thank you. Great. Thank you so much. So that was Chris O'Brien, who really gave some excellent background into how New York has been handling things, as well as the difficulties of actually comparing states while the pandemic is still ongoing. So let's keep a lot of what he spoke about, especially towards the end, in mind as we transition into our next guest, Justin Wright, who is actually an Emory undergraduate alum, who I had the great pleasure of meeting about a year ago at a campus networking event. So while Justin is actually currently working for MedStar Medical Group in Maryland, Let's hear about his previous experience working in a Georgian healthcare system. Thank you so much for being here with me today. I'm very excited. Um, I'm personally, I'm from New York, but of course I'm here on campus right now um, for school. So I'm more familiar with things that are going on in New York as opposed to um, what necessarily happened here um, prior to the semester beginning. Um, so to start, would you be able to tell us a bit about who you are, your background, and what you do? Yeah, sure. So good morning. Uh, my name is Justin Wright. Uh, I serve as the administrative manager for anesthesia services for a company called MedStar Health, uh, which is a not-for-profit uh, health system in the mid-Atlantic area. Uh, we serve um, Northern Virginia, Maryland, and uh, the District of Columbia, D.C., um, and the suburbs surrounding those metropolitan areas. Uh, recently, that's a recent transition for me um, and more relevant to our conversation today. Uh, I recently uh, transitioned into that role from uh, my previous role being a market operations director for St. Francis uh, Emory Healthcare, which is a uh, rural hospital in Columbus, Georgia, Southwest Georgia, uh, right on the Chattahoochee River. Um, I was there for a year and a half, uh, and my primary responsibilities at that hospital were uh, overseeing our surgical services, uh, specifically uh, both the ambulatory and inpatient services for our surgical practices. Uh, that includes uh, orthopedics, uh, ear, nose, and throat, surgeons, uh, neurology, uh, gastroenterology, uh, or my primary service lines that I oversaw uh, the daily operations for. So. Um, definitely, you know, I can speak to what's going on uh, in Georgia, certainly for the past few months um, since um, the COVID-19 pandemic started, but uh, definitely would like to weigh in as well as what's going on in Maryland, too. That's perfect. I love it, um, especially being an East Coast baby. So love to hear that. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Um, so we can go ahead and get started. Could you actually walk us through either how your state or your healthcare system um, initially responded to the to the pandemic, and maybe how those actions have shifted over time um, to current current actions? Yeah, sure. So um, I'll start with uh, I'll start my timeline um, uh, with what we were doing at St. Francis and Columbus. Uh, 
late late March, early April. So um, uh, of course, all of us, you know, watch watch the the news um, and see what goes on um, at a high level um, with the, the federal government, uh, but. Uh, Georgia got involved um, with its hospital association, uh, primarily at the governor's level. Uh, the, the governor of Georgia um, uh, gave us um, direction uh, and the chain of command at the, at the initial onset of uh, the pandemic's entry into the, the, uh, the geographic uh, continental United States. Um, it really centered around how do we prevent uh, infection, of course, uh, new infections. Uh, and, and our strategy uh, surrounded or was, was focused on um, isolation uh, for patients and staff members at the hospital who uh, exhibited the symptoms that the CDC and our other healthcare professionals um, in the country were, uh, as they continue to gather research, right, about what um, symptoms we needed to look out for. So that really guided our, uh, our task force. So early April, uh, our CEO at St. Francis uh, developed a uh, task force, which is, uh, I think, probably step number one uh, for any healthcare entity, uh, any nursing facility, any hospital, um, uh, pretty much any any entity that has um, some level of, of healthcare delivery. Um, but specifically, the entities like like St. Francis, you know, St. Francis is a 400-bed hospital, um, which I would say for a rural community is, is fairly large. Um, and and our, our challenge, the initial challenge uh, was to make sure that um, we screened. So in addition to the isolation, uh, part of our, our task force uh, initiative, uh, our, I would say our secondary um, initiative was to screen um, all of our staff, all of our physicians, all of our clinical um, partners, and of course our patients. So. You know, the one thing that I think um, we, we definitely are doing, um, St. Francis is continuing to do, um, and certainly during the, the early days of, of COVID-19, um, we wanted to make sure that we were touching base with, not physically touching, of course, uh, but, but touching base with every single uh, patron. And when I say patron, I'm talking about, again, the, every single body, every person that enters the building, um, we had to know what their condition was that day. So I'll give you an example um, of, of the protocol that we implemented, um, which I think was was the, the right decision and, and certainly helped us manage the, the COVID numbers that we were managing. Um, uh, every day, uh, any patient or visitor or staff member at the hospital would have to be screened, take your temperature. Uh, we had a three question screening. Um, the questions that we asked that every single person that came in were, um, have you experienced any uh, flu-like symptoms uh, in the past uh, several days? Uh, have you been out of the state, uh, out of Georgia? Have you traveled outside of Georgia uh, within the past 14 days? Uh, and then have you been outside of the country in the past 30 days? So um, that information is, is vital. Um, and I think in any pandemic management process or any um, any any emergency or any disaster that you're trying to manage where um, you're, you need to trace and you have to have very basic information about where people have been is critical um, because you're, you're talking about, you know, there's uh, the, the hospital has 
2,500 to 3,000 employees. Um, and again, as I said, the, the hospital, that particular hospital, St. Francis has 400 beds. So, I mean, you're, you're talking about uh, any given day, more than 3,000 people uh, are circulating through that hospital. And so uh, it was very important that we, we got that step right. So, so certainly uh, the strategy of um, screening uh, first and then isolating was critical um, as we moved into uh, our next phase um, of, of the pandemic uh, isolation, or excuse me, the pandemic um, uh, management process. Uh, but that, that I would say that worked very well. Um, and it, we continue to do that. Uh, we've been doing that now at my, my facilities in, in Baltimore. So that's, that's actually extremely interesting, especially considering the fact that um, St. Francis serves a rural community. And so I'm wondering if there were any particular things that had to be kind of different or adapted to address, mm -hmm. um, you know, just reaching out to people who are much more spread out. Yeah. I imagine the response is completely different than it would yeah. be in Atlanta or in New York City, for example. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so when you're dealing with the rural population, um, uh, typically, you know, the, the population is not necessarily as in tune to um, the research. Um, you're dealing with the older population, typically in a, in a rural setting. Um, and so they're not looking at their phones. They're not looking at Twitter. They're not looking at, they watch the news. Everybody watches the news, but in terms of um, having up-to-date information about the best practices and being safe and, and social distancing, um, that information uh, is not necessarily something that they have, that population um, has access to on a regular basis. Um, because the environment that, that they're living in is not as congested, right? In New York City, there's, you know, there's a, a, some type of television in every, every corner, whether it's a, a business um, or, or, you know, there's, there's access to information um, that I think is more prevalent in an urban setting than in a rural setting. So uh, the biggest challenge I think that we had um, is getting, how do we disseminate that information um, to make sure that it gets to our patients and our visitors um, as soon as possible. You know, the, the hardest thing for us initially was um, facilitating the uh, customer service aspect of our protocol. Um, we had a lot of patients and a lot of visitors that would come daily, right? I mean, if you have a family member that's in the hospital, whether it was, whether it was COVID or not, um, if they're in the hospital for, let's say, a week, and their their relative wants to come visit them. Well, they had to screen and answer those same questions every day, right? Because it's a point of it's a point of uh, a point of care uh, assessment. That screening has to happen every day with with COVID. So there was a lot of frustration, um, and not and I think a lot of the frustration was grounded in the fact that um, uh, in a rural population there may not always be that understanding and that connection of the why, of why we're doing what we're doing. So there was a lot of handholding for, for lack of a better term. Um, and, and our administration, I think did a great job uh, of, of being patient with our staff. I mean, we relied on our own, our own staff to screen, you know, primarily nurses, uh, hospital nurses that uh, uh, would volunteer when they weren't uh, working their shifts, would have 24, 24 seven, um, what I would call service recovery uh, 
uh, agents. And so they literally would be in the, um, all, at every entry point, we had four entry points into the hospital. Um, and they would be there night and day um, answering questions, making people feel comfortable. Because I think, you know, initially for all of us, but particularly in a rural setting, there's a fear factor. Um, right. uh, I think sometimes um, there are things that happen uh, in a rural setting, excuse me, in an urban setting that don't happen in a rural setting. Um, and so when you have unexpected, uh, when things are happening um, that are unexpected, there's a different reaction. Um, and certainly being from, you know, I'm, I'm from the Maryland, D.C. area, and I know you're from New York. So we, we kind of know how to respond to, to certain things that happen um, because they may happen more regularly mm-hmm. than in, our, in a rural setting. So um, in, in summary, to, to answer your question, I think um, we did a good job of, of uh, relaying information, uh, but also repeating, repeating that information so that it became um, the, the, the actions and the expectations that we had of our patients and their visitors and our staff too, um, it was less um, uh, it was less of a shock to them uh, when we would ask them to take their temperature. You know, people would say, why, why do you have to take my temperature? We, you took it yesterday. Well, ma'am, we don't know where you were in the last 24 hours. So, you know, we have to be able to have that, that point, of, point of care testing to uh, ensure your safety as well as the safety of, of the people around you. So that just resonating that message was uh, critical to us being able to get past that that uh, frustrating um, uh, feeling for for our population. Right, just doing your due diligence, right? Of course. Yeah. Um, I think that I think part of why I was also so excited to have you here is because I think the perspective of working in a rural community or amongst a rural population is really, really important because Mm -hmm. they have their own needs. It's different. Um, There are different things that need to be addressed. Healthcare Mm -hmm. can be delivered in a different manner just because Mm -hmm. of really how spread out people are. And, you know, uh, maybe there just might not be as many healthcare systems or healthcare centers in that particular area. Absolutely. Uh, And so I know like, over this past summer and, and really the semester, some of the things I've seen um, in other rural communities, not even just in Georgia, um, have also been people really employing and relying on telehealth mm-hmm. um, as one of their strategies. And so I was just curious, was that something that your healthcare system was able to kind of employ or rely on at all? Yes, um, that, that's a great point. Um, and I think the comparing uh, rural medicine and, and rural healthcare delivery uh, to urban healthcare delivery, uh, the biggest element is access. Um, give you an example: St. Francis uh, in Columbus, Georgia, is one of two uh, comprehensive medical centers. Uh, Piedmont Health uh, has a hospital um, in in Columbus. Um, with that said, if you live in um, Auburn. Um, right across the, the Chattahoochee River in Alabama, um, your your access to um, healthcare services in general, but specifically acute access or acute services that will require you to say be hospitalized. Right, um, if you're hospitalized um, and you're having um, if you're asthmatic or you're having some type of respiratory um, uh, issues. And those issues can't be addressed by either Piedmont or um, St. Francis. Your next option is going up to Atlanta, right? Because you have Emory's up there. Um, you have uh, North. Uh, what's there's another system in Atlanta. Um, 
blanking on the name of the, of the system right now, but um, there's several different hospitals in, in Atlanta. And that's the case for most urban uh, urban settings, right? Um, Wellstar, sorry, I had a, uh, ah, yes. a blank right there, but Mel, well, Wellstar, uh, Emory, uh, Piedmont, there, there's, a, there's a few other, you know, public, um, public institutions uh, that provide, you know, uh, inpatient services as well. So my, my point is, is the access in the urban environment is very limited compared to, to urban environments and, and urban healthcare delivery settings. So um, telemedicine was critical for us uh, both in the ambulatory setting where, where I operate every day, uh, in the clinic, and when I say ambulatory, I'm, I'm referring specifically to, um, you know, your doctor's office. Uh, but uh, so we, we utilize tele telemedicine um, uh, very, very quickly uh, once once COVID numbers started to, to creep up in Georgia. Uh, and that was important, again, because we have a lot of patients who live, they have a farm, they have, you know, acres and acres of land that is, you know, 15, 20, 25 miles away from, from the hospital. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, a trip to the doctor's office literally for some of our patients takes an entire day. Um, and that's very different from being in Baltimore or DC or New York, um, where, you know, you could have, depending on the, the neighborhood that you live in, you could have two to three hospitals within uh, five to 10 city blocks, you know, in walking distance of you. So, um, the access to our physicians was uh, my primary uh, responsibility um, once we decided to um, implement our um, uh, our screening protocol for, for surgeries as well as office visits. So um, telemedicine was critical in us being able to implement that plan. And what I uh, greatly appreciate from my system, um, uh, St. Francis Emory uh, Hospital is owned by LifePoint. Uh, that's the name of the the hospital system that operates um, in rural, they operate in rural um, um, cities, rural, rural areas throughout the United States. Um, they're based in uh, southern um, southern Nashville. And uh, what I appreciate about what, what uh, our marching orders were from our, um, our system level office was that uh, they were very diligent about giving us different platforms. So we use for telemedicine. So we use Zoom. Um, was our primary one. We used Microsoft Teams, um, was our secondary um, uh, platform. So they, they checked all the boxes off, made sure we had all the licenses we needed, um, making sure that, that, that legally, right, because you have to think about, uh, you know, I think that's an a, a element that uh, not everyone thinks about when you're implementing new protocols, especially in the healthcare system. Mm -hmm. um, you have to make sure it's compliant. Uh, with, uh, with HIPAA, make sure it's compliant with um, uh, get, getting consent, right? Um, when, when you're asking someone uh, for information, uh, medical information specifically, you have to have their consent. Um, and so being able to, to replicate that process virtually over, over tele, over uh, video um, versus, you know, being in person when a patient walks into the doctor's office and the front desk staff is asking them these, these screening questions and they sign the consent form and then boom, they're going to the, they're going into the exam room with the physician. Uh, we had to, we had to alter that process um, using Zoom. So, so yes, we, we uh, relied on Zoom. We relied on Microsoft Teams quite a bit. Um, I will tell you though that, um, that the challenge for me uh, came with my my specialist, my surgical specialist. Um, found it a little bit challenging to adapt to the telemedicine um, platform, 
because a lot of their work um, in the ambulatory setting is focused around um, visual assessment. So uh, an example I can give you is if you had a torn um, tendon in your shoulder, if one of your, your shoulder tendons or you had a torn muscle in your, in your shoulder, um, you know what hurts, you know it's not normal. Uh, in a normal non-COVID world, you would make a consult appointment and then the, the orthopedic surgeon uh, would um, do a physical assessment, right? He, he or she would put their hands on your shoulder um, ask you questions about where the pain is. And so there's a physical element um, that requires touch and requires um, vision to be able to uh, properly assess an injury like that. And in the COVID world, you know, our patients, be, be, because we're, we're trying to practice social distancing and, and isolating um, our, our patient population, we were unable to do that in the office. So unless it was an emergency surgery or if, unless it was an emergency injury that required, unless it was an injury that required emergency surgery, um, any elective um, console or elective surgery uh, required a virtual console, which again, if you can't, if a surgeon, uh, if an orthopedic surgeon cannot uh, physically assess your injury, it makes it very challenging for them to, uh, correctly diagnose your injury. So, so we went through some bumps in, in the road on being able to assess um, how did we um, how did we determine urgent versus non-urgent um, uh, cases. So, I just want to kind of throw that out there for for your um, uh, our conversation about you know what is the difference between being in an urban versus rural setting yeah. uh, when we're talking about the the response. Uh, and using telemedicine. So telemedicine is, is vital for rural settings because, again, the access to, uh, to healthcare providers is not as, um, is not as comprehensive uh, in the rural setting um, as it may be in the urban setting. So it was very helpful for us to be able to have telemedicine at our disposal. And I think even one positive thing, if that's what, if you could call it a positive thing, that yeah. came out of the pandemic is kind of, um, healthcare systems, but mainly healthcare providers really realizing the, the strengths and the benefits of telehealth. And I feel like, yeah. you know, as time goes on and hopefully as we exit, you yeah. know, in the state of a pandemic that, you know, it's something that might become more mm -hmm. um, part of the norm and something that's used more frequently. So I'm excited yeah. to see what could possibly happen there with that. Absolutely. Um, so we've talked a lot about some of the strengths of um, primarily your healthcare system. And so I was wondering if we could talk about the weaknesses either from your system or or even from the state in responding um, to the pandemic. I know something I've talked a lot about with um, some other leaders and healthcare professors has been kind of the response time of the United States as a whole. Yeah. Um, locally, of course, um, different states did different things at different times and points. Yeah, yeah. Um, to see if you thought that was a weakness or if there were any other weaknesses that you thought were more um, at the forefront? Yeah, no, um, uh, sure. So I would say the greatest weakness, and I'll speak specifically to what what was going on in Georgia um, and what is still going on in, in Georgia. Um, the greatest weakness, I, I think, is um, the lack of consistency uh, in regard to adhering to um, health professional and public health professional guidelines when it comes to infection control. 
So if we think about it from the big picture, if you, as a public health professional, um, um, even though I'm, I'm on the administrative side, I still consider myself to be uh, one of the uh, public health professionals that is, you know, com combating uh, COVID on the um, uh, on the medical side. Um, you have the Center for Disease Control, which is our federal government's um, um, primary arm of the fence when it comes to uh, infection control. Right? They are um, their mission is to uh, provide the public with um, information and and strategies to uh, maintain our, our, our public health as a, as a nation. And so I think uh, particularly with the CDC being in the state of Georgia, um, it, it was a little disappointing for me uh, to see the lack of consistency that we as a state, uh, health the hospital, uh, hospitals in Georgia um, were not as connected um, with implementing those CDC guidelines um, and of course, as as you know, and, and you know, it's well documented that there there was some political. Um, there are still political um, elements involved in, in how the CDC is able to disseminate information, uh, not just to to hospitals in Georgia, but across the country. Uh, but I, I would say that the biggest weakness that has led to the high numbers that Georgia uh, still has. Um, is is driven by uh, the lack of consistency that the state leadership has had in um, the phasing in or phasing out of certain um, uh, dis social distance requirements. Um, so I'll give you an example of where I think we could have done better. Um, right around, I would say late, mid-June, um, the numbers in Georgia were, were coming down um, and that was great. You know, the, the COVID numbers, COVID cases and, and uh, all the ICUs in the state were coming down. And uh, I wouldn't say we were getting back to normal necessarily, but uh, we were seeing progress in the strategy. Um, the strategy that Governor Kemp had, had put out was, was working. Um, and then we got towards the last week of June um, and uh, the leadership of the state relaxed some of the requirements for where people could go, restaurants that were allowed to have people indoors um, and, and mask wearing, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, and we could talk about the wearing mask uh, of, of later in detail if you want, but um, my, my point is, is that uh, we got to 4th of July, we got to the 4th of July weekend and um, everybody kind of let their hair down in, right. in the state of Georgia. Uh, and it wasn't just Georgia, there were other states that, that did the same. And that really shifted, um, it, 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 I wouldn't say negated the progress that, that we made um, with, um, with managing the, the pandemic, but it certainly did not help um, keep the mindset that people needed to have um, to, to maintain the progress that we were making. You know, you have to have a, a very, um, a very concerted effort by the public and by public officials um, to see the process through. And I think once we got to July, the 4th of July, that weekend, everybody said, gosh, we're, we're struggling, but we're still, we're still making progress. And then two, three weeks later, the numbers, the infection numbers shot right back up. So um, I, I think having a concerted effort to really stick to what 
the CDC guidelines and, and the state health department guidelines are, um, they do work. And it's important that you, that you listen to the, the science and listen to the, the healthcare and the, the public health professionals um, to make sure that you're seeing the progress that you want to continue to make. Right. I, I absolutely agree. And I also really appreciated your point about state adherence and kind of like cohesiveness, because I think something else I heard a lot was, especially in relation to Georgia, was like, oh, well, the CDC is in their background and not background, in their backyard. Uh, yeah. and they're not even like their cases are super high or they're not adhering. And you kind of realize, well, when people kind of use that as a justification, even though they shouldn't, it's kind of hard to argue back. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yes, like this is, if any state should be kind of like at the forefront of not having so many cases, it should be Georgia because we have the CDC right here. Yeah. Um, but obviously that wasn't the case for lots of different reasons. So I think that point about like overall cohesiveness as a state, but also kind of like as a country, I think that would have played a really, really big role in you know being successful overall and that's kind of how other countries certain other countries think like new zealand was able to just not they're just not dealing with the pandemic yeah no absolutely and and just just to touch uh on on that point what you're talking about i i call that it's it's the um perception it's it's perception of um your your strategy so if georgia was you know was leading the the pack in terms of, of where they've ranked compared to other states in um, in number of new infections uh, and the rate of infection, then I certainly think there would have been uh, a more concerted effort by other states to follow, you know, what the CDC was mm -hmm. was proposing. Right. But yeah, I mean, you know, Mayor uh, Mayor uh, Keisha Lance Bottoms in, in Atlanta, you know, I certainly would uh, give her uh, a lot of credit for. Um, um, weathering the storm uh, of what the CDC, which is, you know, probably five to 10 miles away from her, her office, um, you know, at, at Emory uh, or near Emory, um, being able to weather the storm and, and really get Atlanta's numbers under control. Uh, but then uh, yeah, you have, you have the element of uh, the socioeconomic and racial disparities in, in the state of Georgia that are, you know, well-documented again before, the pandemic um, hit hit the the U.S. border. Um, I, I I would say that um, your point about Georgia choosing how how consistently they wanted to push or how how intense they wanted to push the um, the 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 standards of infection control. You know, they really can drive um, and impact how the rest of the country uh, would respond to because they're because of the CDC. Um, there is a very a large Georgia has a large platform. Um, Georgia has a very large platform, and other people uh, are listening and looking at what Georgia's doing. So right. definitely, I think there's uh, opportunities for improvement. Absolutely. Um, and kind of on that note, to actually conclude and ask you my last question, I'm yeah. curious to know, in your personal opinion, of course, um, how well do you think Georgia responded? to the pandemic overall mm -hmm. and kind of what criteria are you using to validate that response? I think originally mm -hmm. I had come into a lot of my interviews wanting to compare states, but as I've you know talked to more people and done more research, I've realized that 
that's a very difficult thing to do because A, we're still, you know, <laughs> in the pandemic and B, different states have different needs, different states responded at different times, yeah. different states implemented yeah. different things. So right yeah. now, if we ever were going to compare them right now, wouldn't necessarily be the right time to do that. And I think sure. you have to, you know, just pick metrics. But I want to say specifically looking at Georgia, what do you think or how do you think they fared in terms of just overall response? Yeah, yeah. So I, I'm a I'm a data driven person. So I hear you. Um, you you want to always, in my opinion, you want to always start with any assessment uh, of a process uh, with with the data and and really rely on the data to tell the story of of what's going on. So just just to give you some quick numbers um, that I'm sure you've you've heard before, but I, I I took the time to make sure I have my accurate data as as uh, updated as possible. So as of today. Um, Georgia is ranked uh, fifth um, in the country in number of cases. So that's not a that's just a hard number, um, and, uh, not a rate uh, over a, a period of time. That's just overall number. So um, 300 in Georgia as of today has 336,241 cases, which ranks them number five in, in the country. Um, compared to Maryland, I'll use Maryland as a comparison. Maryland is ranked uh, 22nd. In, in the country in number of cases. They have, as of today, 1,338 1, cases, 133,548 cases, excuse me. So that's, we're talking almost a, between those two states, almost a 200,000, um, uh, a number of 200,000 difference. There's a difference of almost 200,000 uh, lives. Those are, those are lives that uh, people who are no longer with us um, um, that that we need to really take a uh, take a moment to just understand what what that number means. Um, you know that number doesn't take into the population of the state of Georgia or the state of Maryland. Um, but I rely on just the total number. Uh, but specifically, I also look at the seventy two hour rate. So I know MSNBC and some other news outlets. Um, uh, regularly have the 72-hour rate. How 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 many case, how many new cases are coming into the state every 72 hours? Um, and Georgia ranks. I, I don't have their specific ranking um, right now on where they rank in the 72-hour uh, rate amongst the other states. But um, given that they have been in the top five of total cases um, for almost the the uh, the entire period of, from the spring of 2020 to now, um, I know that they're, they're high on that, that 72 hour rate list. So, um, that, that's my quick, my quick assessment, um, uh, of Georgia's performance, but, but I will say that, um, I've been, uh, I've, I have felt encouraged, uh, with the progress that the state is making, but particularly, you know, as we're mm -hmm. talking about in our, our discussion today, comparing the rule, uh, versus the, um, urban, you know, when you when you think about Georgia, yeah, you, you have um, Atlanta and, and you have Savannah, Atlanta, Savannah, Columbus is the third largest city in the state, but uh, Columbus, I would say, is a, a rural community um, compared to Maryland, where you have Annapolis, you have Baltimore. Um, uh, there, there's a lot of uh, urban counties, um, Prince George's County, Montgomery County. Um, that are that border Washington D.C. 
these are populate these are urban populations um, that again have a lot of public resources. Um, there, there are also private um, uh, resources that that have given you know given their their resources to uh, the Maryland Health Department to allow for people uh, the the residents of, of Maryland to have access to getting testing, uh, access to um, uh, free mask, access to free gloves. Um, I don't think Georgia has invested that level of um, support for the public, public support um, in Georgia. And again, I think it's it's really driven by the um, the how how far apart the health services are in the state. You know, when you leave 285 outside of two, once you get outside of 285 Interstate 285 in Atlanta, um, you're talking about a massive. Um, a massive um, area that you have to cover, that the health department has to cover to get these resources to um, residents in, that live in, in uh, rural populations. So um, being fair to, to, to both, to being fair to every state, I think when you look at the overall number of cases, certainly you need to look at the elements that um, uh, in each state that are related to how they can uh, improve the access because I, I can't over I can't overstate that that the access to um, the clinical resources, but the access to information, uh, it, it really can make or break your progress um, when we're talking about a pandemic because um, the way and you, you're familiar with the way viruses work, but any 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 viral or, or bacteria, any virus or bacteria that can spread airborne. Um, we can't see the air, right? Um, there, there are things, as I say, there, there's certain things that are, that do have color in the air, but bacteria and viruses don't. So, um, being able, being able to really, um, inform people on how they can keep themselves safe, keep themselves safe and keep other people safe. Um, I think Maryland has done a better job, uh, of that than, than Georgia to some of the things you were talking about, how, how serious you can see um, this, the, the state resources and the county resources, all the signs that you know, are telling you, you need to do this, you need to do that. Um, it, those things really do add up and they, and they matter. So certainly uh, I applaud Georgia for the, the effort that they are making. And I certainly think that um, they continue to uh, push, push the envelope um, and provide th those, uh, those resources to increase the access for their residents, they'll do a much better job with the numbers of the infection numbers. Right. Well, thank you so much again for being here. You quite honestly answered every single question perfectly. Okay. <laughs> that was Justin Wright, previously of St. Francis Emory Healthcare, who not only gave us a great perspective of how rural health and healthcare has been responding, but also the really powerful role of telehealth. I think if there are any strengths of how um, healthcare structures and hospitals have been responding, it's definitely in demonstrating how powerful and beneficial telehealth can really be. So Justin really did add another layer of, you know, the healthcare responses to this conversation. Also really important to keep in mind for our final guest. Up next, we have Dr. Ellen Eidler, who is a professor of sociology, religion, healthcare systems, and really how all these different topics are interconnected. So um, she's also a former professor of mine, so I know she's absolutely knowledgeable about the subject and really does have the skills and 
and knowledge to be well equipped for this discussion. So um, without further ado, Dr. Ellen Eidler. Just to start, could you go ahead and actually introduce yourself to our listeners and let them know who you are and your background? Sure. So my name is Ellen Eidler. I'm a professor in the Department of Sociology at Emory University, and um, I'm the director of graduate studies for the department. I'm also the director of something called the Religion and Public Health Collaborative, which is why I came to Emory. I used to teach at Rutgers University in New Jersey. And the Religion and Public Health Collaborative is a really special program for students in the Candler School of Theology and the Rollins School of Public Health to share classes. They have a certificate and a dual degree program to bring together people who would be potentially working in the future in faith-based organizations or partnering with people from public health and religion together to do public health projects and initiatives. And um, it's really beneficial to have that kind of cross-disciplinary training for the students. And um, religion is definitely an issue with respect to COVID. So we might talk about that. Um, I'm also a member of the Graduate Division of Religion and the Rollins School of Public Health faculty. And so I, I have, um, I feel like I touch on a lot of different areas of Emory, but um, Emory is a wonderful place and I'm really happy to be teaching there. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. Um, because of all of your, I guess, different expertise and kind of how much you are involved in the different areas of Emory, that's exactly why I was really excited to have you here today. So thank you again for being here. My first question is, what were your initial thoughts about how the U.S. began responding to um, the pandemic in like February, March? And do you think it was early enough, kind of late, or just what are, what are your thoughts on that? Um, well, I guess I had misgivings from the beginning um, because it seemed that the United States wasn't using the same test that other countries around the world were using, which was the test developed by the World Health Organization. And the CDC had their own test, which apparently was mishandled at the beginning and was incorrect results. And so um, it was recalled and they had to start over again. So there was a delay in testing from the very beginning that set the United States somewhat apart from a lot of other countries that were all just standardly using the World Health Organization's testing. And also it seemed that um, some spokespeople for the CDC, notably Deborah Messonnier, um, were speaking openly about the threat of this pandemic hitting the United States. And um, there was mixed messages coming from the White House and from the CDC in a way that made it seem as if there wasn't going to be um, a clear strategy for approaching it um, very early in, in February and March. Um, I guess uh, the, the fact that very soon it seemed as if it was not the scientists who were leading the public messaging, but it was politicians and the government that was taking the lead role in, in letting people know what they needed to do. Um, and so that led to a lot of people not really having faith in the information that was coming from the government um, or the contradictory messages that were coming. And so it got people confused right from the beginning. Right, absolutely. And I think that point of like when the messaging was coming out as well is really interesting because 
Um, last semester, I was actually taking uh, immunization programs and policies course at Rollins. And that was when it was, I think, in late January that they started, like my professors were talking about it and they had brought it up. And that was my first introduction to, oh my gosh, this is happening and not anywhere else. I wasn't hearing it in the news. I wasn't seeing it anywhere unless I went and Googled it and kind of like saw what WHO was saying, what was happening in other countries. But in terms of like locally, I had no idea. If it wasn't for that class, I don't think I would have, you know, mm -hmm. caught on to what was going on or started paying attention as early as I did. So that's, I think, a really, really good point. I think that's in, as people are kind of like reflecting and looking at the timeline of events, kind of wondering why and what happened in terms of why were we so late relative to other countries. And part of it also has to do, I think, with the testing and, you know, what works, what isn't working. But then also the huge factor of like, it's an ongoing pandemic and it's not something that has necessarily happened before that people can like look back and say, okay, this happened, this worked and it didn't work. Everything that's happening, like it's happening in the moment. So it is still happening. We shouldn't exactly. be talking about any past tense. Exactly. Yeah. And I mean, I guess you could kind of sum it all up by saying that um, the response of the federal government was to not take the lead and to just let the states try to handle the crisis on their own. And of course, some states were affected early and other states were really not affected early at all. So different, depending on what part of the country you were in, as you say, you might not even know anything about it and you might not think that and anything was really happening, but, um, the, but leaving the individual states to be negotiating contracts for medical supplies and protective equipment meant that states were bidding against each other to get that equipment that they all needed. And that just brought the prices up. It led to price gouging and profit taking by the companies that had the goods that states needed. And it was very counterproductive because states have limited budgets and they were having to spend more than they should have been spending on all of that equipment that was necessary. So, so, so the federal government should have and in every other country in the world probably there may be some exceptions but um, they wouldn't be like ours uh, federal governments took the lead and and became the purchaser so that equipment and supplies was you know were they paid the price that they negotiated for one you know one price right. for all of the states and then shared it equitably that should have been the approach that was taken but it wasn't I'm actually so glad that you brought that up because I think that explains, or that's that's one reason that could explain why that is so important, why it's important for a federal approach and you know for the country to kind of respond to it as a whole, as opposed to just doing it state by state or case by case. Because um, that was some, some of the questioning I was kind of seeing on the internet and kind of even hearing people discuss, well, why shouldn't it be a state approach? Like states are being, as you mentioned, um, affected differently, but that pricing and that access to materials is a huge, huge, huge factor. And um, I can even use my own personal experience of like looking at what happened in New York, they were having huge issues with trying to find enough ventilators um, and just how to kind of like disperse it amongst the state in terms of, okay, well, this particular area, I think Queens and Long Island were very, very, very heavily impacted. And so it's like, okay, well, how do you kind of, um, distribute them effectively, but also efficiently. So that's, I'm, I'm so glad you brought that up because that kind of gives you one perspective of, of why that is important. So kind of on that same token of, of states 
Um, we can start with New York and I'm, I'm curious to know how do you think or how well do you think New York responded to things that were happening and, and what might be a particular aspect that they were strong in doing and what might be something that they could have done better or could use improvements in the future? Well, I'm in New Jersey, so that means that I'm in the New York media market. We don't have our own TV <laughs> here in New Jersey. We just watch the news from New York. So, and but my daughter lives in Queens. She lives in Jackson Heights, Queens. She okay. lives four, four blocks away from the Elmhurst Hospital, which yeah. was one of the most news covered hospitals early in the pandemic because of the the, the trailers that were having to be brought out and parked on the street to store the bodies of those who had died. And, and Emma said that the sirens never stopped all night long, all day long, there were sirens because the ambulances were taking people to Elmhurst. And so she was really right in one of the most severely hit of New York, of New York state, New York city, and then certain parts of, of Queens um, and Brooklyn compared with Manhattan, which had relatively low rates. I mean, of course, the whole city was involved, but she was absolutely at sort of the ground zero of um, those. And she never she didn't get it. But um, uh, many, many, many people did. Um, so um, there were disputes between Mayor de Blasio and Governor Cuomo and disagreements about um, how to, what to do in the city. De Blasio delayed somewhat in closing the schools for a little while, I, out of, I think, very basically good reasons, because he was aware of how many children depended on the schools for their food and other sorts of social programs that, you know, they would not be getting if they were at home. So, so you know, he had a, he had a good sort of impulse, but the delay may have contributed to it. The cities, you know, New York and New Jersey, New Jersey was hit also very hard at the same time. And, you know, um, we know that the original cases weren't coming to the United States from China. They were coming to the United States from Europe and cases in Europe may have come from China in the first place. But New York being, you know, a major <clears throat> port of entry and New Jersey, too, we have the three airports here, um, meant that a lot of people coming from overseas were coming to New York and New Jersey without the kind of screening at the airports that there should have been. And that led to the early outbreak. Um, <clears throat> And nobody knew what, I mean, we had the examples of some other countries, but still being the sort of first line, it was, you know, it was very hard and, and terrifying. It really was very, very scary up here. Yeah, I completely agree. I, I was in New York for most of the summer and even getting like the, um, the iPhone like alerts about curfews and things like that. Um, you honestly, like I would talk to my dad about it and I would say like, this is the kind of thing that you watch in the movies. Like, it was just very hard to conceptualize that this is really happening and people are like really being impacted. But something that I think they and New York as a whole could have really worked on and really also Georgia is kind of dealing with the disparities in health and the different areas um, that were highly, highly impacted. And something that I learned in your class, but also a couple of my other classes um, is about zip code and how zip code can be one of the greatest, if not the greatest predictor of health and health outcomes. And so I wanted you to be able to kind of explain to listeners who might not be familiar with health disparities, what that concept means and what that kind of entails. 
Well, people who think about population health or how the overall life expectancy or the overall infant mortality rate in a population think about not necessarily the individual actions that people take to protect their health, but they think about the what they call upstream determinants. What are the, the deeper causes that have an impact on the overall health of people? And those upstream determinants are a lot to do with wealth and income and education and economic resources. And when people have those things, they have a lot of other things too. They likely have um, a healthier place to live that has a better school system and more tree cover and cleaner air and cleaner water. And all of those things, generation after generation, contribute to the health of people who live there. Um, and so health disparities means that there are great differences in wealth and education. And those differences often cross the color line and race distributes people into more and less advantaged categories. And I think, you know, I think our awareness of this, uh, especially this year, uh, and the Black Lives Matter protests has really allowed us to understand the very deep way that the systemic racism has ended up putting people into economic categories that have nothing to do with how hard they worked or, you know, what grades they got in school or anything. There are these, these generational disadvantages that play out and, you know, just seem to become intractable. And those things all have a big impact on people's health. So even in a city, as you said, the zip code matters. Cities have multiple zip codes and even people who live in, you know, in one part of, for example, of one that we were talking about in my class this semester last week was um, in Richmond, Virginia. Uh, some researchers did some research on redlining and on um, the the way mortgages and banks would loan make lending to people depending on where they lived in the city, and they showed some 1930s maps of Richmond, Virginia, and where the redlined areas were and where the more advantaged neighborhoods were. They had like four grades, and the banks just wouldn't loan to people that were inside these redlined areas. Then the researchers compared those maps of redlining in 1930 with what the tree cover in Richmond, Virginia looks like today. What neighborhoods do you think have lots more trees and shade and better air? It, it just, you can put the maps right over each other. It's unbelievable. So, so what that means is that generations of people who were, who were disadvantaged with respect to mortgages couldn't buy houses that appreciated and were able to be the main factor that drives wealth in this country is home ownership. But if people are denied the opportunity to have a mortgage and buy a home, they don't invest in that property and then are not able to pass it on to their children. So, so this, I think that people are a lot more aware now of how deep this systemic racism is and not just think about it as something that is sort of new for every generation because it's not, it goes over many, many, many decades. Absolutely. And, and that key word for me there is, is generational, honestly. Um, it's not something that 
is gone or has ever been gone. It just shifts over time and takes multiple different forms. And that quite literally applies to lots of different aspects, whether we're talking about the criminal justice system or access to health. So um, I think that's really, really key to looking at this as well. Um, well, so can we just, but do you want to tie it into COVID? I, maybe that's what your question was going to be, yes, but I was, yes. Um, but, you know, the, it's really clear that people who have been the most disadvantaged by this pandemic have been the people who were designated as essential workers, many of whom were low wage workers that, who did not have health insurance um, and who were mandated to continue doing their jobs if it was in the transit system or you know, police and fire and first responders, not necessarily medical care workers, although they also were frontline workers. And so these were the people who were the most exposed and the least protected by the system at the same time. Absolutely. And kind of on that same note with the mapping, they have, um, I guess, like hot spotting and COVID tracking maps that you can look at. And when you look at the ones for New York, at least when I did over the summer, you can see the particular areas that have like the highest cases and if you look at that map and then you, you know, add, you know, income levels or you add racial um, uh, lines, it's pretty much the same thing. And that you can kind of place them over the over each other and that the areas where the highest cases are are also the areas where um, they're like the lowest income rate or um, they tend to be predominantly black and Hispanic people. And so that really kind of solidifies that for you and makes you think, OK, well, this isn't just about health or health isn't the only aspect, or it's not just income, they're all interrelated and they all work together. And that's exactly how, um, I guess, health disparities and COVID and really just health and disease and race and all really the social determinants of health, they're all interrelated and how they kind of exacerbate each other. I thought like looking at that was, it just showed you exactly what that means and, and what that what we're talking about when we talk about social determinants of health and healthcare disparities. Um, so I'm, I'm glad you brought that up as well. Um, and I would encourage the listeners to go and look at your own state or look at, you know, the states that we're talking about and kind of see what other elements come into health, um, particularly COVID cases and, and what, you know, could be exacerbating the cases in your state as well. Thank you so, so much, Dr. Ivla, for being here with me today. Like I mentioned earlier, I was really excited to have you on the podcast. And I know like the listeners can't see, but I've been smiling the entire time. <laughs> just because <laughs> just because a lot of the things that we've talked about, um, I can kind of like I'm either hearing the concepts or I'm kind of like thinking about the concepts, not only from your class, but also just some of the other classes I've been taking that have been, of course, related to health. Um, and I'm kind of like putting it all together and it's very like full circle for me. So um, thank you. Thank you so much for your time. And I'm very excited to have this episode come out. Well, it's nice to reconnect with you. And that was our last guest of the day, Dr. Ellen Eiler. She did a phenomenal job of pulling in firsthand experience, but also concepts and themes present in this pandemic. I hope this episode has been as enlightening for you as it has for me. Not only did we hear perspectives from New York and Georgia, but we looked holistically at the United States and discussed significant disparities in health present and emphasized during this pandemic. Thank you all for joining me today and special thanks Thanks to thanks each to of my guests, my guests for taking time taking away from their away, very busy very schedules busy to be here today. Stay safe and stay informed. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to the COVID Chronicles. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to subscribe, share it with a friend, and rate it on your favorite podcasting app. You can visit us at exploringhealth.org and follow the Emory University Center for the Study of Human Health at Emory CSHH on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Until next time, stay safe and be well.